I will also read to us from Mark's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 9 to 11, the account of Jesus' baptism. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us today through your word, for your word is truth. Sanctify us and make us holy. Fill us with your love and with your joy, with your life. O Father, with your Son and with the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, we give you praise and thanks. Amen. How often do you start a sermon with a quote from an atheist? But that's what I'm going to do here this morning uh, on this Trinity Sunday. This comes from the English actor Ricky Gervais uh, as he explains his atheism. He says, since the beginning of recorded history, historians have cataloged over 3,700 supernatural beings, of which 2,870 can be considered deities. So next time someone tells me they believe in God, I'll say, oh, which one? Zeus? Hades? Jupiter? Mars? Odin? Thor? Krishna? Vishnu? Ra? If they say, just God, I only believe in the one God, I'll point out that they are nearly as atheistic as me. I don't believe in 2,870 gods, and they don't believe in 2,869. Now, what do you think of his argument? I actually think he's got a point. Uh, in one sense, you could say we are all skeptics. We are all unbelievers. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. We have to specify which God. Because there are a lot of gods we don't believe in. A lot of these deities are not worthy of belief or worship. Does anyone think that Zeus should be honored or adored today? If you read the Greek myths, it's hard to believe that uh, Zeus was ever worshipped. It's hard to imagine he was ever considered worthy of that kind of praise. But I don't know anybody worshipping Zeus today. Or what about the god Molech, who required worshippers to sacrifice their children in the fire? Do you worship that God? No, I certainly don't. I am an unbeliever as far as Molech is concerned. Gervais is right. When it comes to these other gods, we too are atheists. Atheists. We do not believe in them. We don't believe their gods. And that means theism is not enough to counter atheism. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. You have to identify the God you believe in. We're not just theists. We don't believe in any being that has been called a God. We are Christians after all. We believe in a certain God who has revealed himself in a certain way, who has a certain character, who has a particular story and a particular people he calls his own. Of those 2,870 deities historians have identified as gods, we do not believe in 2,869 of them. Uh, it makes me think of the story that uh, New Testament scholar Tom Wright 
uh, tells when he was uh, a professor at the university and he would get challenged by students who are suddenly full of themselves with all their new learning and they would come to the theology professor and say, I no longer believe in God. I can no longer believe in God after all I've learned. And so Dr. Wright would say to them, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And after they described this God they didn't believe in, uh, Wright would say, oh, I don't believe in that God either. Because they would have described a God who is cruel and capricious, who doesn't want humans to have any fun or any joy. Of course the existence of that kind of God would not be good news. No one wants that kind of God. Uh, The late uh, Christopher Hitchens was probably one of the most famous atheists of the last generation, perhaps the most celebrated of all uh, the new atheists of the last generation. This is why Hitchens rejected belief in God. Listen to what he says. Why he finds the whole idea of God so revolting. He says, it is a totalitarian belief. It is the wish to be a slave. It is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you are asleep, who can subject you to total surveillance around the clock every waking and sleeping minute of your life, and even worse, and where the real fun begins, after you're dead. A celestial North Korea. Who wants this to be true? Who but a slave desires such a ghastly fate? For Hitchens, God is a North Korean dictator. For Hitchens, it's not so much that he had an argument against God's existence. It's just that to him, the whole idea of God's existence is detestable and depressing. The whole idea of God is tyrannical and dehumanizing. He can't imagine anything worse. God's existence for Hitchens would be bad news. It turns the universe into a kind of cosmic North Korea. If anything, it's worse than North Korea. A surveillance state like North Korea can only watch your actions, but God even surveils your thoughts. So you're always being watched. There's no escape from his gaze, his judgmental gaze. It sounds miserable. Now, some counter this picture of God painted by Hitchens by saying, oh, well, God's not like that. God is a God of love. That's how I imagine God. But all too often in American pop theology, this God is just as much a product of the human imagination as these other gods. God is pictured as a sort of giant Santa Claus in the sky who indulges us, who loves everybody, who judges no one, who would never tell us no who wants us to have whatever we want, who wants us happy all the time. But the truth is, that kind of God is no more satisfying than Hitchens' tyrannical God. A God who doesn't judge, a God who can't say no, a God who doesn't do anything about evil, a God who treats Adolf Hitler and Billy Graham the same way, that's also bad news. A bad news God. Because it means evil wins. Evil never gets dealt with. It never gets defeated by this God of niceness. God's too nice to do anything about the evil in the world. And so, no, we don't believe in that kind of indifferent God of American pop theology either, any more than we believe in the tyrannical God of Hitchens. Gervais is right. Believers are skeptics. We don't believe in just any God. We confess faith in a specific God with specific attributes, with a certain character and history. Those who believe in the Christian God are unbelievers in all those other gods, and we ought to say so. But you know what? 
Atheists are unbelievers. That's what they say about themselves. That's their unbelievers in the nature of the case, right? But at the same time, atheists are believers. Because actually, atheists, while they may not believe in a god, they do have a god of sorts. Maybe a, a different kind of god, not one of those traditional gods, one of the 2,870. But they do have a god, and they do have certain faith commitments. They don't believe in God in the sense of some kind of supreme being, but they have made some aspect of the creation, some aspect of the world, into a God, and they have some sort of confession of faith. Since atheists have no God in the conventional sense, what do they believe in? Well, atheists will say things like, matter is all there is. Matter and energy is all there is. Matter in motion. Because that's supposed to be scientific. Atheists believe that at the bottom of everything, matter is all that exists. It's matter all the way down. And so all psychology reduces to biology. All biology reduces to chemistry. All chemistry reduces to physics. And that's all there is. Uh, So Richard Dawkins, another of these celebrated new atheists, uh, says this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But the question I want to ask Dawkins and uh, the other atheists is, is this really a coherent and livable faith? Does this view make sense of the world we live in? Can you really live without purpose, without morality, without love? I don't think so. Think about the leaps of faith, the leaps of faith that an atheist has to make. He has to say something came from nothing. This whole universe we see, where did it come from? It's as if they believe in a cosmic virgin birth. Only without the virgin. The universe just sprang into existence out of nothing. Where did everything come come from? There are other problems that crop up for the atheist. Uh, Is matter alive? Where did life come from? Not only did something have to come from nothing, but life had to come from non-life. Order had to come from chaos. Structure had to come from chance. Morality had to come from what is non-moral. Reason had to come from what is non-rational. Consciousness had to come from what does not have consciousness. Personality had to come from what is impersonal. Meaning has had to come from what is meaningless. Believing in atheism is really no different than believing in magic, you might say. There's no way to cross all these gaps, to bridge these gaps. These leaps simply aren't justified. Atheism is self-defeating. Just unpack a few of these and just consider this. What about reason? If matter that is all that exists, what is reason? Atheists like to say they're just being logical, but what is logic? If an atheist prides himself in logic, can you really fit logic into an atheistic universe? What is logic? Logic are immaterial, universally binding laws of thought. The laws of logic, these laws of thought, are not reducible to matter. I mean, how much does a law of logic weigh? Have you ever seen one or observed one? How can there be universal, non-material, binding laws of thought in an atheist world? There can't be. 
And further, if what we call reason is simply the product of evolutionary forces, then why trust it? Why think the thoughts in your head can have any kind of truth value at all if they're just chemical reactions that have evolved in a certain kind of way? Even Charles Darwin saw this problem with his theory of evolution. Uh, In a letter in 1881, he wrote this. He said, then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which have been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Darwin could see that this kind of materialism, that his evolutionary theory really destroyed truth, reason, and logic. Atheists have got another problem. They have a problem with life. How did life come from non-life? There's simply no scientific explanation for that. Indeed, it's unscientific. Even if a scientist could run an experiment in which life arose from non-life in an atheistic universe, who is the scientist running the experiment? There is no scientist, no creator, no designer. It's all chance. Can life, with all of its structure and order and design, life with all of its fine-tuning, really be the result of time and chance acting on matter? Can time and chance acting on matter produce all we see around us? Atheists have a problem with morality. They want to make moral judgments. And so, for example, they'll object to the Bible on moral grounds. They'll say that certain things in the Bible are evil. Probably the most famous example of this is the conquest of Canaan, where God commands the Israelites to utterly destroy the Canaanites so they can take possession of the promised land. But if an atheist objects to this, calling it evil, it really doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. Now, there's a lot going on in the Canaanite conquest. That would be a separate discussion in itself. But actually, when you look carefully at the scriptures, you find God was being very patient with the Canaanites. He did not judge them for centuries, waiting for their iniquity to reach the full measure. God said to Abraham, I promise you this land, but it'll be 400 years before your descendants take possession of it because the iniquity of the Canaanites has to reach its full measure. And when you consider what the Canaanites were really like, the question is not why did God command their destruction, but why did he wait so long? And imagine if God had promised to the Allied powers victory over the Nazis, but it said, I'm going to give the Nazis 400 years so their iniquity can reach its full measure, so they can be fully mature in their evil when they're finally judged. We'd say, God, you're being way too patient. You should go ahead and judge these people now. Well, destroying the Canaanites was like defeating the Nazis, only the Canaanites were much worse. But here's the question for the atheists. Why is it wrong? Why is it evil to destroy a whole nation of people if that's what the Israelites actually did? In an atheistic universe, how can there be a moral objection to anything? Oh, sure, there can be preferences and opinions, but there are no moral absolutes. There's no way to determine right and wrong. It's just might makes right. May the strongest win. It's survival of the fittest. In an atheistic universe, where does moral obligation come from? It comes from nowhere. There is no moral obligation. Matter is not moral, and if matter is all there is, there is no morality. And we could keep going with this. Atheists act as if the universe has a purpose and meaning. They live their lives as if their lives had some kind of purpose. 
But if matter is all there is, if matter and energy is all there is, there is no purpose or meaning. Purpose and meaning aren't composed of matter. This doesn't work that way. They'll act as if the world wasn't ruled by chance, as if there were such a thing as consistent law uh, in the universe. They'll act as if there is such a thing as love, as if there is design and significance in the universe. Atheism is simply not coherent. It requires too many leaps of faith. Atheism is not practical. You can't consistently live it out. With the atheist, we can question claims about deities. Is this or that God worthy of belief and adoration? But we can also question the atheists themselves in the same way. They say they're unbelievers, but they do have beliefs. Are those beliefs worthy? Are they justified? The answer is no. So let's try another approach. What does the Christian have to say about this? What is the Christian claim? Well, uh, what is our God like? Who is this God we confess? A lot of places we could start to answer that question, but let's take the account of Jesus' baptism we read from Mark chapter 1. What do we find in the story of Jesus' baptism? We find that this one true God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. The three are one. The one God exists in three persons. This is who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. God lives and exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. The baptism of Jesus really becomes a window into the life of God. God opens up his inner life for us to see who he is. So in the baptism, the Father speaks to the Son. He makes a declaration of love to His Son. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father is the lover. The Son is the beloved. The Father says to the Son, I love you. And He gives the Son His Spirit. So the Spirit really communicates the love of the Father to the Son. So we can ask the question this way. What do Christians believe is at the bottom of everything? What is the absolute foundation. I think we see it right here. The Father's love for the Son in the Spirit. What is the foundation of everything, the bedrock of everything, this God who exists as a communion of love? What we Christians call the Trinity. At the baptism, the Father says to the Son, You are my beloved. But when did the Father start loving the Son? He has loved the Son from all eternity. He has loved Him forever and always. Of those 2,870 gods Gervais talked about, only one of them is love. Because only one of them is a trinity. John 17, 24, we also read this morning. It's part of Jesus' prayer, known as the high priestly prayer. His prayer to His Father. Uh, on that night that he's going to be betrayed, the night before he goes to the cross, he prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have for me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. We've seen atheists say before the foundation of the world there was matter, nothing but matter. No glory, no love, just matter. What does Jesus say was there before the foundation of the world? Love. This love shared by Father and Son. You have loved me from before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, there was love. 
The love of the Father for the Son in the Spirit. Go back to what Christopher Hitchens said. How does he see God? He sees God as this tyrannical, power-hungry God whose gaze is always on us so he can judge us and condemn us. A God with an itchy trigger finger. He sees God as a kind of cosmic bully, a cosmic dictator. But what vision of God does Jesus give us? Not a God of raw power, but a God of love. A God who has existed in love from all eternity. Oh yes, this God is all-powerful as well. He is omnipotent, but it is a loving omnipotence, an omnipotent love. And yes, his gaze is always on us, but it is a gaze of love. We live under his loving gaze. God has existed in self-giving love from all eternity. Father giving himself to the Son in love. Son returning love to his Father. It's a circle of love. A circle of love and life and glory that has no beginning and will have no end. This love has no end, no beginning, and no end. What does the Christian say? The deepest reality in the universe. Back of the universe, behind the universe, underneath the universe, surrounding the universe, is this love of God. Deuteronomy 33, 27, Moses says, The eternal God, he says to Israel, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God is your dwelling place. You too live in his love. In the house of his love, Moses says. And underneath are the everlasting arms of God. The everlasting and loving arms of God embrace and uphold the world. His everlasting arms are underneath you. They're embracing you and holding you up. You live in the love of God. Those loving arms of God are underneath you, holding you up. When we say God is love, This is just what we mean as Christians. Saying God is love is another way of saying God is a trinity. Saying God is a trinity is another way of saying God is love. It's not just that God is loving. That's true, but that's not the full Christian claim. It's that God is love. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is from a famous passage in his book, Mere Christianity. He says all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. What Christians mean by the statement God is love is that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. Lewis is saying that we can say God is love and has always been love because the Father has had this love for the Son and the Son for the Father from all eternity. But then he goes further. He says this union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving, which they would not have if they were apart. 
It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it's not a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. When we say God is love, this is what we mean. When we say God is Trinity, we mean God is love. He's been love existing in this communion of love between Father and Son in the Spirit from all eternity. Of the 2,870 gods that have competed for human attention and adoration, there's only one you can say this about. God is love. That claim cannot be made for any of the other 2,869 gods. So this God, we confess, no, this God is not the cosmic bully that Christopher Hitchens rejected. Nor is he the indulgent God of American pop theology, because indulgence is not the same as love. Love is not indifferent to justice and holiness. No, this God is utterly unique. This is the Trinity, the triune God. Now, we went down the atheistic path, and we saw where that leaves us. If matter is all that exists, we're left without love, without logic, without goodness, without purpose. It's a dead end, that pathway. But what if we go down the Trinitarian path? Then what kind of world do we find ourselves living in? Is there purpose and meaning in the world? Well, yes, of course. This God has given our lives purpose and significance. Is there community? Is there real relationship, real love in the world? Yes. Is there a reason why we crave connection with others so much? Why family and friendships are so important to us? Why it's so important to be accepted by other people? Why loneliness is so debilitating and dehumanizing? Absolutely. Given the Trinity, we can make sense out of that. God has existed as a family of love from all eternity, and we're made in His image. So of course we crave connection with others. Of course we feel most alive and most fully human when we're in deep relationships with other people. Of course we need family. We're made in the image of the God who is a family. Go down the line, and you'll see this again and again. The Trinity accounts for all the things that make life livable. The Trinity explains all the things that make life worth living. Take this God away, and you lose love, purpose, morality, beauty. Everything is lost. But with Him, we can account for these realities. We have a reason for understanding why these realities are so crucial to our lives. Because that's the thing. Everybody lives as though love and logic and truth and beauty and goodness exist. Even the atheists. We know deep down people matter more than rocks. That matter is not the only thing that matters. But there's only one way to account for these things. Only one way to account for these realities, these inescapable realities. It's the words of Jesus. You loved me before the foundation of the world. It's the Trinity. Now, some might still ask, isn't evil proof that God's love isn't the core of reality? How can you say God is love when there's so much evil in the world? Would a loving God allow earthquakes and malaria and genocide and theft? Well, terrible things do happen. But those things don't disprove the claim that love is the deepest reality in the world. Listen to Glenn Scrivener. I, I mentioned this in the announcement. Scrivener's uh, book is so helpful on this, and I'm relying on some things he says this morning. But listen to what he says about this. 
For the Christian, this makes perfect sense. These realities are the deepest reality because God is love. On the atheist account, foundational reality is impersonal, moral, and non-rational. Therefore, there are huge questions that remain unanswered. How could life emerge from non-life? How could minds emerge from matter? Why on earth would we trust them if they did emerge via mindless processes? But perhaps most troubling of all, if ultimate reality is impersonal, why are any of these things, persons, minds, logic, language, laughter, and lemon drizzle cake, considered to be progress? It says, why are we outraged by evil and suffering? We are outraged. We should be outraged. But why? This question is easy to answer for the Christian, but difficult for the atheist. Remember what Richard Dawkins said? At bottom, there is no evil, no good. For Dawkins, evil and good are simply surface-level experiences. They're not deeply connected to the way things actually are. They're just opinions or preferences. They're not objective realities. The nastiness of the world, Scrivener says, might be unpleasant, painful, grotesque, or maladapted to survival. But if at bottom there is no evil and no good, then for Dawkins, those things are not wrong, not on the deepest level. Yet... When we experience the horrors of this world, we experience them as evil. We feel that they should not be. We cry out for a solution for justice, and we grieve them as realities that don't belong. Therefore, even as suffering strikes, the Christian view is not disproved, but upheld. For the Christian, evil can never be one of those things. No, it is a profound violation of the way life ought to be. When Christians say God is love, they don't then conclude that everything is lovely. It is not. But the God of love makes sense of our outrage at everything that is unlovely. He gives us a right to call a bad world bad. And not only that, not only does God give us the right to call evil what it is, but also because God is a God of love, we know he will do something about the evil and injustice found in the world, and even in our own hearts, because evil is found in our hearts as well. The love of the Father and the Son is from eternity to eternity. Evil and injustice are only temporary. God is going to overcome them and defeat them and drive them out of his good world in the end. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means God's existence is good news. But for God's existence to be good news, it has to be the right God, the right kind of God. The existence of Zeus would not be good news. The existence of Molech would not be good news. The existence of Christopher Hitchens' kind of God is not good news. The existence of the God of American pop theology is not good news. But the existence of the Trinity, now that's good news. Indeed, that is the greatest news of all. It is the best news of all. God himself is good news. God himself is the gospel. The Trinity is the gospel. It is good news that God is like this. That God has given himself to us and opened himself up to us in this way. God himself is God's gift to us. And this gift comes to us in Jesus. So the triune God reveals himself to us in Jesus. He is the Son of the Father eternally begotten of the Father by the Spirit, now brought into this world as a man by the work of the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit of the Father, 
In Jesus, God has united himself to the human race. In Jesus, God has given himself to humanity. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and so Jesus can show the Father to us. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what the true and living God is like? Look at Jesus. Someone once said, if God is not like Jesus, he ought to be. Well, the good news is, he is like Jesus. The beloved Son of the Father has stepped out of eternity and into history as a man, now as the God-man, the Word made flesh. And so in Him, we can behold God's glory. In Him, we can behold God's love. Jesus connects the Trinity to humanity. He reveals God to us. But I want you to see, the Trinity has more than just explanatory power. It's not just that the Trinity explains all of this. The Trinity not only shows us how God lives, the Trinity shows us how we ought to live as well. And indeed, in Jesus, we are brought into the very life of the Trinity. This is truly the best news of all. Not just that God is like this, and not just that God shows us how to live the way He lives, to imitate Him. It's that God has brought us into His own life. Through Jesus, Look again at that prayer in John 17. Jesus prays for his disciples that they may be made perfect in oneness. That as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. What is Jesus saying here? He's praying for us, the disciples of the future. He's praying for how we will live our lives. He's praying that we would be one in one another. That we would be in one another in a way analogous to how the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father. We're to have a oneness amongst ourselves that mirrors God's oneness. A love for one another that is an earthly image of the Father's love for the Son. The Father and the Son indwell one another. They make room for one another. They're welcoming and hospitable towards one another. We should live the same way. Welcoming one another. Inviting others into our lives going out of ourselves and into the lives of others to serve them, to honor them, to love them. We should image the Trinity in our community. You indwelling me, me indwelling you. God's life is a life of festivity and joy. Our lives should image that triune festivity. If our lives do not image the Trinity, if we do not indwell one another in life and love, Jesus says, then the world's not going to come to know that the Son dwells in the Father and was sent by the Father. It is as the church images the Trinity that our mission is fulfilled. The mission of the church to the world is to show the world what God looks like, to show the world how God lives by how we live in community with one another. Started with an atheist, let me end with an atheist. Frederick Nietzsche, the self-proclaimed antichrist, once said, there cannot be a God because if there were one, I could not believe that I was not he. Says there's going to be a God, I've got to be that God. Nietzsche was very critical of the Christian faith. He summarized his critique of Christians in his time by saying this They would have to sing better songs if I am to believe in the Redeemer, and his disciples would have to look a little more redeemed. You need to understand the biggest threat to the church is not atheism, 
The biggest threat to the church is not liberalism. The biggest threat to the church is not what is out there in the world. No, the biggest threat to the church is what is in here. It's our own joylessness, our lovelessness, our failure to indwell one another and to live as one. It's our failure to look like we're redeemed, to live like a redeemed people. It's our failure to indwell one another in love and joy. Nietzsche's critique is right. If we want people to believe in our Redeemer, we've got to look redeemed. But again, the Trinity can help us. The Trinity comes to the rescue once again. Nietzsche said in another place, he said, I would only believe in a God who could dance. I would only believe in a God who could dance. Well, the Trinity gives us a dancing God. A God who dances as the persons of the Trinity indwell one another. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. In the Christian faith, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. As Father and Son give themselves to one another in the Spirit. The life of God is a kind of dance. So Nietzsche, here it is, a God who dances. That's what you get in the Trinity. It's sad that Nietzsche wasn't taught the Trinity better than he was. Perhaps he would have found the dancing God he could have believed in. But again, there's even more to say. It's not just that God himself dances. It's that we've been invited into this triune dance. Again, we don't just imitate God from the outside, looking at God and then trying to imitate that ourselves. It's that God has made us participants in his own life. He's invited us in. The church is, after all, the bride of Christ. Jesus has proposed to us. He asked the church, may I have this dance? And he sweeps us away onto the dance floor of the triune life. And as we enter into this dance with the Son, we share in the life and love and joy of God himself. We are dancing with the Trinity, indwelling one another, and God indwelling us even as we indwell God. Jesus teaching us the dance steps, choreographing our lives through his word, making us one with God. So now we are living in sync with God, in harmony with the life of Father, Son, and Spirit. And in this way, Jesus' mission to save fallen humanity and unite us to God is being fulfilled. We're dancing with the triune God. The eternal Son of God became human so He could be the place where the Trinity meets humanity and where humanity is taken up into the life of the Trinity. In Jesus, humanity and Trinity are joined together and so we become one with God. Not God's ourselves, we're always His creatures. But we become one with God, sharing in His life and His joy and His love. In Jesus, that circle of triune love has been opened up. The the, the life of God, the great divine dance, has been opened up so we can enter in and share in God's glory and light and love and life. So we can dwell in God even as He dwells in us. Jesus came to bring us home. To bring us home to the triune God, the one true and living God. Jesus came so we might be embraced by the everlasting arms of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise 
for making yourself known to us through Jesus and through your Spirit. We thank you for being a God in whom we can make our home and for being a God who has made his home in us. We thank you for wrapping your everlasting arms of love around us. We thank you for bringing us into your life with the Son and the Spirit, the triune life, this life of joy and festivity, of love and laughter, of wisdom and creativity, this glorious and beautiful life that is divine, but now shared with us as humans made in your image. Oh God, may we be filled with all of these things that come from you, these gifts that come from you. May we know your love. May we know your joy. Oh great God, this we pray, giving you praise and thanks. Amen.